Good morning. Happy Father's Day. I chose the parable of... Uh, I chose the parable of two sons for this day. But I uh, want to correct any suspicion that uh, what Jesus teaches us in the parable of two sons has to do just with fathers. It has to do with us all. Um, I'm aware today, as I was not a week ago, that today can be a hard celebration. Uh, this last Wednesday, we uh, once a month, early in the morning, we have what's called Pastors Connect. And uh, a number of pastors get together, enjoy some coffee or a, a sweet roll, and uh, visit together. And I asked the question, what are you doing for Father's Day? And several said... They don't do anything. They avoid it. It's too complicated. They even mention Mother's Day. They don't do anything for Mother's Day because it's too complicated. Too many stories of heartbreak, sadness, and in some cases even anger. One pastor said, and I'd never heard this before, but I thought it was kind of true. On Mother's Day, we celebrate moms. On Father's Day, we chastise dads. And another, in effect, and you could even say this was kind of the theme, you know, in celebrating something positive, we remind others of the negative. Some told stories, in fact, of people stepping out of the service while they were speaking on a Mother's Day or a Father's Day because it was too painful, something they reported to the pastor later. Later, So, I realize Father's Day can be hard, if not painful. In fact, uh, I read uh, a couple of blogs about fathers and this one was interesting because it was written by a woman, a wife, a mother, and a daughter, all the same woman. And she asked, why are father-son relationships so troublesome? I believe it has to do, she wrote, with notions of manhood. My father was a difficult man. And my brother later on told me that he didn't know how to be a father to his kids because he had such a bad role model. My heart broke for him. In order to be a man, he had to unlearn everything he was taught from birth. My husband, she continued, lost his father at a young age. It damaged him. And only the army gave him a taste of what he wanted to learn from his dad. I have male friends who never met their fathers or cannot remember them. One male friend told me in bitterness, men do one thing well, they leave. His father divorced his mother and in turn divorced his children as well. He struggles with wholeness to this day. 
I also know divorced men, she continues, who want to be with their children desperately, but custody battles and family quarrels make something that should be simple into slaying the dragon. She ends with, the world is a better place when fathers can be truly fathers. I know this from my own life. So, yes, there are bad dads, dads that have failed, as well as dads that we missed, not just because they abandoned us, but because they've died, and we wish they hadn't, and we wished we still had them or could have them back. One son, now a man, whose father died 10 years ago, 10 years ago Thursday, when he wrote this letter to his dad and posted it on his blog. He he recounted joys, his father's life, and his father's advice. And then he closed with these words, I was thinking about you lately, Dad, because Father's Day is in a few days. I was thinking about how only God could have put me with you and how our relationship grew because you never gave up on me. Oh, I know full well now how you must have felt at times when I failed at doing right, telling the truth, losing my temper, being disrespectful, doing things that hurt me, my utter selfishness, living the lie, and so on. I get it now. I guess I'm just writing you this letter because you're on my mind. And my heart is grateful this Father's Day for you. Oh, what I really miss most is your wisdom in all sorts of situations. I miss you, Dad. And I'm looking forward to reuniting you with you in heaven. You know, Dad, you are the man I hope to be someday. You're the man I hope to someday become. That was written by Dan Solon. I didn't know Dan Solon. So I did a Google search. This Dan Solon is not the Dan Solon the investment banker, the investment advisor that dominates 32 pages on Google's search. This is the Dan Solon that doesn't even show up on Google. And yet I thought to myself, there's an honor about him and a greatness that his family and his own children obviously see because of what God has done in his life, because of what he has become and what he is becoming. Today's talk is not a eulogy, certainly not the kind that brings a snicker or a knowing look because the praise that I pour out on fathers is out of proportion, not just to the man in your life, but to any man. God calls us to great things, all of us, in Jesus. And there's something in the parable of two sons for all of us. 
So if you will, I hope you have your Bible open. We're in Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to read verses 28 through 32. And without going into the situation, I mean, if you were to back up to verse 26, you could pick up the whole thing. I will just say this. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's in the temple. He's entered Jerusalem triumphantly on a colt. He's thrown the money changers out of the temple and proclaimed that this house is a house of prayer. And in the temple, the spiritual somebodies, the chief priests, the elders of the people, these are the distinguished ones, the ones that the people look up to. These are the leaders. And they come to Jesus and they ask him this question, who do you think you are? And Jesus says, let me ask you a question. He says, you remember John's baptism? Was it from heaven? Which means, was it from God? Because heaven is a devout and respectful substitute for the name of God. Was it from heaven or was it from man? And then these leaders, these spiritual somebodies, the ones the people look up to, they reason among themselves. If we say from heaven, then he's going to say, why didn't you respond to John's baptism? But if we say from man, we're in trouble because the people regarded John as a prophet. And that's going to put us at odds with the people. And they're going to disrespect and not look up to us. And so they told Jesus, we don't know. And then Jesus says, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do what I do. And then he says this in verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. I just want to insert something very quickly, and I'll talk about it and make my case for this a little bit in a little bit. But this, I really think to get the essence of what is being said here, and there are grounds for this, this should be understood as he had a change of heart. He had a change of heart. And he went to the other son and said the same. And this other son answered, I go, sir, or master. It's the same word that's used of calling someone Lord. It's honorific. It shows great respect of his father. But he did not go. 
Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Even as the son who had a change of heart went into the field. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Let me uh, quiz you. Who said this? What we do in life echoes in eternity. Well, that was Maximus in the movie Gladiator. (laughs) How about this? Every man dies. Not every man really lives. Well, that was William Wallace in Braveheart. How about this? That's why no one will remember your name. Well, that was Achilles in uh, Troy. How about this one? Rise up, O men of God. Well, that was William P. Merrill and his hymn, Rise Up, O Men of God. (laughs) When I was young, I used to hear that, and I always thought it was wise up, which uh, is also appropriate. (laughs) How about this? Well done, my good and faithful servant. That was Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 21 and 23. Men aspire to greatness, but it's not just the aspiration of men. Perhaps it can be said that we all have desires and dreams of doing great and indelible things. All of those sayings have to do with greatness, of honor. And greatness and honor is a call to courage. Courage comes from the Latin word for heart, core. Take heart, we say. Be of good courage. To have heart means to have courage. And this is God's idea of strength, inner strength. God gives us that inner strength and courage. It's at the heart of who we are when we trust and obey him. Eric Metaxas in his book titled Seven Men, The Secret to Their Greatness, calls God's courage the secret to their greatness. In fact, he writes, It's the courage to do the right things when all else tells you not to do it. The courage to rise above your surroundings and circumstances. The courage to be God's idea of a real man and to give yourself for others when it costs you to do so. And when everything tells you to look out for yourself first. Seven men... He highlights, and there are more in life, but seven men that he highlights shared one particular quality 
courage. Courage from God. Courage to do the right thing. Courage to put God ahead of themselves. God's values. God's principles. God's purposes. In fact, he says... That one quality is a quality of surrendering themselves to a higher purpose of giving something away that they might have kept. That is at the heart of the parable of two sons. In giving this parable the answer to what was going on, the answer and the challenge to the question and the issues that these special spiritual somebodies were raising, Jesus was honoring, that is, honoring, elevating, saying greatness is found in a change of heart. The one who trusts and obeys. Show that God is bigger than you. And you'll show that those who look up to you, you'll show those who look up to you that you're bigger than you are. The greatest men I've known were bigger than they thought because they made themselves littler than God. They were bigger in life. Bigger in principle, and bigger in grace. And you might think, doesn't everybody know that they're smaller than God? You'd think so. But even those who know, and I can speak from personal experience, don't always practice it. John the Baptist practiced it, and he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. This is not the way of our culture. This is not the way of our world. This uh, week also, in my musings and my searchings, I ran across advice. The top ten quotes that every man should live by. And this was at askmen.com. Do you know what the number one quote that every man should live by is? A man is a success if he gets up in the morning and goes to bed at night and in between does what he wants to do. Bob Dylan. You see, there is a battle for our hearts, men. I had a, it was odd how things come together. This Thursday, a, a student, Mike Brogna, who's pastoring up in Stockton, California, he posted on Facebook a poem, and I just want to share with you this one stanza, and he, it's titled The Battle Cry. He writes, in this fight, a constant war, less of me, of Jesus more, strength of flesh, loss of way. Power of spirit, victory today. 
A.W. Tozer said, God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity we plan to do only the things we can do ourselves. That's the rub, isn't it? Show that God is bigger than you. And that is shown every time we have a change of heart. Not to do what we want to do, but to do what he wants to do. That's real life. In fact, when we show that God is bigger than we are, we're bigger in life. Bigger in life. In the parable, the first son was determined to do only the things he himself wanted to do. But he had a change of heart. This literally, I I guess you could say, if you were to translate this just off the top of your head, you would say it is translated change of mind. But it's it's a very rich verb. And it doesn't occur that many times. And one investigates this meaning of this word. And there's always a quality. There's There's a perception of regret. There's an awareness of regret. Now, we don't like regret. It's a complex emotion. But wherever there's regret, there's always a higher truth, a greater principle. There's no regret without a greater truth or higher principle. And in this case, it was the will of the son's father. And he had a change of heart. He was moved at the heart. And he went as he said he would not into the field. This is diametrically the opposite of the spiritual somebodies that are questioning who Jesus is. John the Baptist, his baptism called people to repentance. Repentance is an archaic term in many places. And in our contemporary discourse, the way we talk to one another, we don't use the word repentance, but it means a turning. It means a change of heart. John was calling people to a change of heart towards God. It prepared the way for Jesus. Their ministries were one and two. They were first stage, second stage. John was preparing the way for the announcement of Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent, Jesus said. Believe in the good news. Why is a turning toward God good news? Well, It is because God has a better way. It's a better way. And that's a hard thing for us men to learn, especially in this culture, in this world that says, hey, you're a success. If you get up in the morning and you go to bed at night, and in between you do whatever you want to do. Many do find their power in pride. It is a great source of human strength but self-centered. And when does self-centeredness bring greatness and honor? God is calling us all to greatness because he has a better way, a way that reparents us, reparents us all. 
broken fathers and broken mothers, broken children, a better way. Because he is heavenly father. And whenever his father is used of God, it has a sense of affection, not just friendship, affection. Because he has a better way. Because he loves us. A.W. Tozer said, it's not just trust, it's not just obey, it's trust and obey. When, my, when I was a child, my mom would get us in the 56 Chevy, drive us to Ripon every Saturday, and she would sing, trust and obey. And I would listen to her sing. It's my favorite song. When the seniors would have their luncheon and they would sing hymns, trust and obey, trust and obey, that's what I want to sing. But it's not just trust only. And it's not just obey only. It's trust and obey because he's our heavenly father. Show that God is bigger than you and you'll be bigger in life and bigger in principle, number two. In the parable, the big shots are unprincipled. They're people pleasers. In verses 24 through 27, they show that they're pragmatists without an ounce of integrity. They're politicians parading as pious examples of godliness. Anyone can parade, but it's a totally different matter to have a change of heart, which often involves humility and making ourselves smaller before God because of principles, because of truths that are bigger than we are because God is bigger. You know, if anyone is following you, you're a leader. Who's following you and where are you taking them? Are you taking them to the center of your self-interest? Or, you, or are you taking them to things that are bigger than you? The best leaders are principled leaders. They're followers of truth. Truths that are bigger than they are, higher than they are, bigger than their pride and ego. And out of that, which always brings a change of heart, there's courage to do the right thing. I was moved by the movie 42. Did any of you see it? <laughs> Maybe the number 42 didn't get grab you. It was the story of Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson who broke the color barrier. The first African-American, the first black baseball player to play in the National Baseball League, to enter and play with the white players. And the story is really about not just Jackie Robinson, but Branch Rick Rickey, and they were both principled leaders. Baseball brought them together but their relationship off the field lasted for years. Biographer Jimmy Breslin writes about Branch Rickey and how he broke the color line in baseball because, quote, he was convinced it was God's work. He looked for the right player and the right person full of moral courage, willing to turn the other cheek. 
to end what Ricky called an odious injustice. And that man that he was looking for was Jackie Robinson. It was no small no small feat. It was 1947. And just a few coordinates to help us understand that time. It was eight years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus. It was 16 years before Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. It was 17 years before the Civil Rights Act of 1964. 18 years before the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And what Branch Rickey was asking of Jackie Robinson was to have enough guts not to fight back. Branch needed a man committed to living out the teaching of Jesus, the teaching Jesus himself embodied in going to the cross. And I'm not exaggerating. You won't see that part in the movie. But a few biographers have brought out this understanding And not all of them are believers themselves. But Metaxas writes, Robinson was a Christian, and his faith was at the very center of his decision to accept Branch Rickey's invitation to play for the all-white Brooklyn Dodgers. Branch Rickey himself was a Bible-thumping Methodist whose faith led him to find a player with the heart like Robinson's to break the color barrier. At the center of one of the most important civil rights stories in America, and even the world, I would add, lies two men of passionate Christian faith. Breslin points out that in their first meeting in 1945, Ricky read to him from Giovanni Papini's book, Life of Christ, and pointed him to the biblical account of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Ricky told Robinson, quote, We can't fight our way through this. We've got no army. There's virtually nobody on our side, no owners, no umpires, very few newspaper men, and I'm afraid many fans will be hostile. We'll be in a tough position. We can win only if we convince the world that I'm doing this because you are a great ball player and a fine gentleman. And at the heart of the Jackie Robinson story, says Metaxas, is that he changed America by successfully living out both on and off the baseball field the revolutionary and world-changing words of Jesus. So I encourage you to see the movie. I don't have the time to share a couple of incidents that were extremely moving. Jackie Robinson is one of the great baseball players, hailed as one of the great The statistics would amaze you. But what is even greater is what he did in the power of his faith in Jesus Christ to withstand hatred, malicious, racist, belittling, dehumanizing talk. And not just from the fans, but even from the coaches and other players. But what Robinson kept before him were things that were greater than himself, future generations, his children, and his children's children, and what God could do through him if only he would let go of what was in his best interest for those that are of higher interest and of the purpose of God. 
And so it's no surprise that Jackie Robinson said, a life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. Branch Rickey said of Jackie's signing, I couldn't face my God much longer knowing that his black creatures are held separate and distinct from his white creatures in the game that has given me all I own. Both men had grace-given strength because of the heart of Jesus Christ. Show God is bigger than you. And it'll show those who look up to you that you're actually bigger than you are. More honorable. Greater. And it begins with a change of heart. Bigger in life, bigger in principle, and bigger in grace. In the parable, the people are honored, but not those who were the chief priests and elders, but the tax collectors and prostitutes. Honored right along with the first son in the parable, the one who had a change of heart. After first saying, no, I reject you, he had a change of heart, and so did they. And Jesus holds them up in a place of honor, as examples, as role models to those whom in the eyes of the people were the special spiritual leaders. He says, they'll enter the kingdom of God ahead of you, if you do at all. That change of heart is driven by grace. Greatness is begotten by grace. I know it's tough with fathers. C.S. Lewis said, Every man has a grudge against his father and his first teacher. The process of being brought up, however, cannot fail to offend. It got me to thinking, what was C.S. Lewis's relationship with his father like? Because I remembered from reading his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, that they had some awkward, if not uh, clumsy, moments as father and son. And that's putting it perhaps nicely. They couldn't communicate, which was ironic because in their respective field, they both were great communicators. What's interesting, though, is that after his father's death, this is what he wrote, and because he regretted mistakes that he'd made in his relationship with his father, and he, he said, I treated my own father abominably, and no sin in my whole life now seems to be so serious. And unfortunately, joint efforts to reconcile were never made, and the opportunity for apologies came too late. I suppose we need to appreciate that his dad died in 1929. Lewis, Jack to his friends, was an avowed atheist and then a theist. But when his dad died, he was yet to be a Christian. And that came two years later, almost to the month and the day. And then I found something rather surprising that I think was evidence of the grace that worked in Jack C.S. Lewis's own life. 
after that dramatic change of heart in 1931. He went on, as maybe you know, I think it was made into a movie, Shadowlands, about his marriage to Joy Davidson, G. Davidman. She had a son by a previous marriage. His name was Douglas. Douglas was 10 when he and his mother came to live with C.S. or Jack. He says, because I found a, a, an article from him. In fact, he's the executor of all the Narnia stuff to this day. And he writes about the kind of father Jack, C.S. Lewis, was to him. He says he was estranged from his own father. And then he writes, suddenly, a 62-year-old professor of medieval English literature who'd been a bachelor for almost all his life was the closest thing I had to a father. He did everything he could to raise me. I saw C.S. Lewis, a C.S. Lewis few people knew, and I grew to love him deeply. He said, I was excited to meet the author of the Narnia books, and I pictured someone from Narnia itself. Maybe a knight with a sword. I encountered instead a bald, stout old man dressed in a shabby tweed coat and with tobacco stains on his teeth and hands. I was crushed until I began to get to know him. And he details what a wonderful father he was and what a great communicator. He says he knew exactly how to talk to me. He was straightforward and took me seriously, not like some grown-ups who get cutesy and condescending. Perhaps, he says, I loved Jack most about, what I loved about Jack most was how much he loved my mother. And he also adds another point. He could have washed his hands of me when my parents were both gone. My mother, two years before my father, who committed suicide... But he didn't. Instead, he made me a part of the last years of his life. He says, Jack died in 1963 when I was 18. At his funeral, and I'm quoting, I saw a candle burning in a simple candlestick on his coffin. Others say they remember no such thing. But I'm certain I saw that candle. Its flames burned unwaveringly through the whole service. It was a perfect image of Jack's love. For me, for my mother, for anyone blessed enough to have come into the circle of his friends. Jack embodied values that sound old-fashioned. Courtesy, duty, loyalty. He was steadfast in his devotion to me. And so I now do my best to remain faithful to him. What would I have done without him? Alone with no one to turn to. I hoped to meet a knight in armor from a fairy tale. I got something far greater, far bigger. A father of unwavering love. You might think, who in our circles could, uh, you know, be much greater or of higher honor 
or greatness as a C.S. Lewis. It's kind of amazing that in ways I don't think he'll, well, maybe he does know somehow, but ways he wouldn't himself have imagined. He's even greater than he was in the eyes of his stepson. That's who he truly was because God was bigger than him. That's what brought the grace out in his life. That's what brought the principle out in his life. That's what brought the life out in his life. Jean-Paul Richter, a writer, wrote, The words of Father speaks to his children in the privacy of the home are not overheard at the time, but as in whispering galleries, they will be clearly heard at the end and by posterity. Posterity, greatness, honor, a change of heart, not just once, every day. Every day. A turning. A willingness to say, God, you're bigger than me. I'm going to trust you. It's hard. I have to give up something, something I wanted, something I thought was best, to trust you and obey. Will you stand with me? For all of us, this, this week, to starting today, I'll put it in bold terms. Let's try to repent at least five times every day. Let me pray for us. And uh, when I say amen, if you would like to pray with me or the pastoral staff, the elders and their wives about something maybe God has touched you with, we'd love to pray with you or for someone else on your heart this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you are such a loving and great God and that it is your desire to make us more like Jesus. There's a greatness that can't be topped. In Jesus' matchless name we pray, and all of God's people said, Happy Father's Day.